0: That we'll go ahead and at least start uh, initially with uh, trying to relocate our place and maybe uh, deal with any questions that you might have. Um, I had, well, I believe that I covered or talked at least a little bit about Ruth. Maybe this was where I think we left off. But if you happen to know, if you have notes or something, uh, that would be helpful. But I, I do. I, I am interested in knowing like what questions you might have. Has anything come up? Like. I don't, I don't want to be overconfident saying, you know, I'm sure that after you leave this class, you go talk with all your friends about me. No, I mean, that's not, a, no. yeah, you probably do. You're like, God, this guy, can you believe him? <laughs> <We> <laughs> Who's? <have to> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Get him off the stage. No, I, I am interested, you know, are, are, there, are there issues that, that you would have liked to have raised or, or, or things or questions that you have that, um, that are on your, your heart and mind this morning? Yeah, yeah. That Job took his issues to God rather than people. I and I think that's fair, right? Um, I mean, he certainly does take it to God uh, in the form of a lawsuit, but at least it's you know at least it's something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think I think it's it's a lovely you know it's a lovely point to think that you know while it's true that job essentially is trying to sue god for his unfair treatment god actually will god actually submits himself to being observed by job in that space and and he has some stern things to say to job but that says something about the nature of god doesn't it right that even when we come to god with complaints he goes okay well i'll actually answer the phone you know <laughs> yeah thanks for coming we have we have some things to talk about i'm glad you're here <laughs> Well, that's I. I just think that's that's something that's been really important for my spiritual nurture is grappling with the notion of divine condescension, that God will, he'll take me at my best, but he'll take me at my worst, and, and you know, and it's not like there's this threshold or a bar that I have to achieve before God is willing to hear me. Um, I mean, he's gracious in even taking us at our brattiest, right? And and you can't get much more, you know well i don 't want to say you can get much more bratty than Job because look, I mean that would diminish the man 's suffering, right He really did suffer, and there really are some serious questions about it, like, oh, God did a deal with the devil uh i don't like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a very rich book there's there's no doubting it. I appreciate what you said by the way, what's your name Sue Sue, thank you so much for that that 's very good yeah job job is is just as much a testimony about. God actually wanting to be in relation with with us than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? Quiet, girl. <laughs> so Ruth. I think I think last time we were talking about Ruth, and I was pointing out that it's the story of a foreign woman who finds a place among Israel, and and that that's particularly interesting in light of other writings in the uh, in the writings in the Ketuvim. Um, We don't need to, you know, repeat that and go over it. Just kind of put that, you know, put that in your uh, notes, and, and we'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. The next slide uh, is, is sort of like, okay, how, how in-depth do I want to go with this? <laughs> right? Song of Songs. A Song of Songs, also known as Song of Solomon, um. I mean, it actually opens with the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, right? Which, you know, in Hebrew, when you, when you say the X of X's, right, the Holy of Holies, you're saying it's the most something. That's their way of making the superlative, right? We don't, in, in at least biblical Hebrew, you know, we, we, you know, in English we have good, better, best. In Hebrew, they didn't have that. And so they said, you know, good, you know, good than... <laughs> Good of all goods, right? And that would be like their comparative superlative. So this would theoretically be something like the best song or the songiest song, right? Like that's a strange title. This is the songiest song I know, and it is. Uh, and I've put in as I put in parentheses here a erotic or semi erotic love poem. And when we look at it just at face value as a liter as a piece of literature, it is very reminiscent of. Uh, text that we refer to as the Egyptian love poems, um, with its way of describing the beloved using natural imagery and its you know quasi erotic nature, it, it's it seems very much in company with a lot of that literature. But anybody that knows uh, this text and, and its place in the traditions of Judaism and Christianity knows that it's much more complicated than that because it's perceived differently than, than that. It's not seen as a straightforward love poem. It's, it's seen as something else. Uh, we think historically that, like the Egyptian love poems, that, uh, that these, this kind of literature would have served the purpose of training elite scribes. That is to say, you know, uh, junior scribes, we, You know, a scribe, there's not one size fits all with scribes in the ancient world. There were lots of different kinds of scribes there were scribes that you know wrote out business you know accounting slips or receipts so then there were scribes who were composing you know royal inscriptions and their abilities were different so we think that you know for example the book of proverbs with its short punchy statements would have been training material for lower end scribes who are gaining some mastery like these these are middle school scribes you know maybe maybe early high school and then song of songs with its more Adept imagery and its complexities and its florid language is probably like the college-level scribal training, right? Um, that seems to be in line with what we know from comparative sources in Mesopotamia and Egypt, that these songs were a way of, of training scribes. But that is not a good explanation for why it came to be considered part of sacred scripture. Uh, that we would take on someone's school text and make it you know, designated as sacred and holy is, is odd. And, and historically speaking, um, the fact that there aren't really any references to God except one, and even then it's probably not really fully a reference to God, uh, and and the fact that it's just erotic, <laughs> it, it really did kind of make some people ask, you know, should we include this in the canon? And even even amongst the rabbis, when they were debating, you know, what what is canon, what should we read as a rule of faith, uh, there was a there was a grand debate. The Song of Songs is kind of Strange, and it was it came down to a very famous rabbi by the name of Akiva, who said, "What do you mean not take the Song of Songs?" He said, "You know all of Scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies." Which is kind of funny that he uses the same structure, right? He says the holy of holies, uh, and he, he he's you know very enamored of this, and he talks a bit about you know the great mystery that's that's being revealed in the Song of Songs, and in this. Uh, understanding that he has, what he's arguing essentially is what came to be very, very much the accepted tradition for reading the song, which is that, yes, on the surface it looks like a human love poem and it has erotic themes and romantic imagery, but this is really an expression of Israel's relationship to God and God's love for his people. And, uh, you know, there's a good reason that they would have argued this. Starting in the literary prophets in the Iron Age, with prophets like Hosea and Isaiah, we have the introduction of of a kind of a new image of God. And there are, you know, in the Old Testament, there really are two primary metaphors. If you're going to use a metaphor to talk about how God relates to his people, there are two primary ones. And the first is the the, the father-son metaphor. You know, I am, I am the, I'm the father and you're my child. I'm disciplining you. I'm training you. I'm teaching you. Um, The other is the husband-wife metaphor, and we're not entirely sure where this came from, uh, except to say that there was in the Iron Age there was very much an interest in the idea of a divine couple, a husband and wife, and yet the prophets make it very clear that's not an acceptable expression of true worship for God. And so perhaps in some sense they say, look, if you want to think about a couple, it's God and you, which, by the way, is pretty radical. you know. There's not a divine goddess in heaven who's consorting with Yahweh. You're his beloved. And actually, there's, there's a really interesting pun. If you open up your Bibles, I'm just sort of going off the cuff here. And this isn't a prophets class, so what am I doing talking about prophets? Well, I cheated, so. Hosea chapter 2. So, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Hosea. Hosea chapter 2. The whole passage is a reflection about the woman who represents the people of God and God, the husband who represents God. The discipline that he's enacting because she's being unfaithful. And what it means to be unfaithful here, you know, what, is it, what does it look like for a wife to be unfaithful to her husband? Well, in this language, it's about she chases after other lovers, she's giving herself up sexually to these other men. But that's the metaphor. The thing it's actually seeking to describe is worship, faithfulness. And, you know, I, I like to tell my students, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you're going to encounter the word prostitution a lot whoredom a lot what you probably haven't learned in sunday school is that when in almost all of those circumstances not all of them but in most of those cases the word prostitution doesn't have anything to do with sex it doesn't have anything to do with sex it is playing off the metaphor i'm talking about it is unfaithfulness to yahweh it's worshiping other gods when jezebel for example Think about Jezebel. I mean, can you get a better prostitution word, right, than Jezebel? You name so, oh, that Jezebel. When I try to explain this to my millennial students, they don't understand it. So I'm glad to know that we're on the same page, because you have probably heard somebody get called a Jezebel once in your life. What is usually meant by that? She's a slut. I mean, I hate to say that so coarsely, but it's true. She's, you know, she's just a, no, you. But who was Jezebel? In the Bible, Jezebel is we, we think of her as being associated with sexual sin, but she's not. She's associated, you know this, right, Michael? She's Ahab's wife, and her big beef, I mean, her big beef is she doesn't like Yahweh's prophets. She kills them off, and she wants people to worship her god. Her god Baal. That was his title, Baal. It means, it means catch this, okay? It means master, but it's also the word you use for husband in Hebrew. He's the husband, right? So, but Yahweh doesn't like this. He's like, oh, excuse me, husband? No, thank you. And so actually at this point in Hosea, this is where we come back, right? So Jezebel and her association with sex was actually not sex at all. It was about cultic infidelity. It's about worshiping someone besides Yahweh. And the reason that it becomes associated with prostitution is just because it's injected into the mold of this metaphor that the relationship between God and his people is the loving relationship between a husband And his wife, and so in Hosea chapter 2, in verse 16, in our Bibles, in Hebrew Bible, it's numbered differently. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Some of your Bibles may actually have a different translation. Does anybody have a different translation there? My master, maybe? Something else? 16. You'll call me my husband, you'll not call me my... Anything? Master, right. Well, it's the same. Okay, the difference is, so in Hebrew it says, lo tikri'ili, no, sorry, tikri ishi, you shall call me my man. V'lo od baali," and you will no longer call me my husband, in that sense. You're going to stop, and so it's, it's a reference, he says, you know, you have been confusing me with this other deity. By the way, his, his, that's his title. His real name is Hadad, okay, or Hadu, the storm god. And he's saying, You've been calling me by his name, and that, I'm not going to have that anymore. As a matter of fact, the days are coming when I'm going to make a distinction. You're going to stop confusing me with this, and you're going to call me my man. Which, by the way, think about the, the nuance of this. We talk about relationships, Sue. God says, you're gonna stop calling me my overlord, which is the traditional title that a woman uses for husband, and you're gonna start saying, You're my man. What's the difference in that relationship term? Think about that. Right? Ish and Isha, man and woman, as opposed to here. What does it mean that God's gonna say, one day you're gonna see me here and not just here? Wow! So that marriage metaphor that starts in the prophets, gets extended through Isaiah and Jeremiah, which ultimately, by the way, is the reason the New Testament talks about the church as the bride of Christ, has its association here in the Song of Songs in traditional interpretation. I mean, that is to say, you know, when you have a song that celebrates romantic and possibly erotic love in your Bibles, it makes you kind of feel a little bit like, oh, I don't know how to talk about this, so okay, Let's talk about it as God's love for us. And that's fine. Uh, you know, I, 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 am a, I am a believer that Scripture doesn't have one univocal meaning, that, that the, the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts and minds trying to help us understand all the dimensions of the, of the reality of God. I do believe that the plain sense of Scripture is where we start, but I don't always think that's where we finish. And so I'm open to this interpretation. But at the same time, like, there are times when I'm like, well, you know, I do think that the root of this song is in in, in literature that celebrates romance. Uh, today, I mean, there are you know Christian publishing houses, which we might call the what's it called? There's there's a phrase for this. The all of the all of the produce that's made for evangelical con- consumption is called like the in, uh, evangelical industrial complex. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> So there are books that will orient themselves on the Song of Songs as a love manual on how to be married or whatever. No, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, and, you know, we could go into all sorts of really agonizing detail about all the euphemisms or the potential euphemisms in the Song of Songs, and I could really make you squirm because there are some really interesting references there. Suffice it to say that, and you could just, just you know, as an exercise, you, you go home and you read with your spouse, you know, Song of Songs, and read it with the, with the enlightened understanding <clears throat> that the word hand is usually a reference to, uh, or the hand, that hand in the, in the Semitic world is a euphemism for genitalia. <laughs> I'll just leave you with that, and you go read it yourself. I'm not going to expose you to any more, uh, lest I be kicked out. So, <clears throat> if, I mean, if you come to conclusions on your own, I didn't have anything to do with it. All right, But it sure makes an interesting read. So, Ecclesiastes, the next in the writings. Ecclesiastes in Greek means uh, the the one who presides over a congregation, ecclesia, right? A a gathering, a a church. Um, This is a translation of the Hebrew kohelet, which means the same thing. A a kahal is a congregation, and a kohelet is the person who calls it into being. And this is a a part of the wisdom literature that uh, kind of is of a bit of a different stripe than what you get in Proverbs. Proverbs is a very pedestrian, basic rules for life. Ecclesiastes is more like, what's the point of life, <laughs> right? And, and, and it doesn't always give us clear answers. The text itself is traditionally identified as coming from Solomon. Um, you know, it, it, it is identified as the words of the preacher, king in Jerusalem. But it's unclear You know, why Solomon would be a choice for this. Um, traditionally he is, but there's no internal reason to say that. And we have wondered about some of the, the nature of Ecclesiastes, the text, the things that it talks about, the fact that it, at times it seems to be acquainted with, with Greek philosophy and thinking makes us wonder if Ecclesiastes isn't written at a much later time under someone else you know, who's identified as king. I mean, there were kings after him, uh, especially in the Hasmonean period. So Ecclesiastes is what I consider to be a fairly pessimistic dialogue or monologue on the nature of life, wisdom, what you know, what's worth pursuing, what's not worth pursuing, and it walks people through all these various ways of finding significance and joy in life, and it finds each one to be devoid of anything. Right? Havel Havelim is like the very first thing that the the author says. We often translate it as vanity of vanities, but that that's, that translation lacks something. It's missing something because. What, what does it mean? I mean, for all we know, it could be talking about, because as we said, you know, X of X's usually means like the best, whatever. We don't want to misunderstand vanities of vanity. Vanity of vanities as referring to an excellent piece of bathroom hardware. Right? That, that would be a misinterpretation. Right? Or, or, or vainness, as in like, look at me, I'm so vain, I'm proud of myself. The word Havel, uh, actually, it's, it's, it's the same word that's given to one of the characters in the book of Genesis. Cain and Havel. And Havel means fading away, which is a pretty kind of spooky name. You know, when mom and dad named him Abel, like, he won't be here long, right? That's, that's the kind of sense you get. Havel, Havelim, you know, the, of, uh, so he's saying, you know, oh, the most vanishing of things, the fleetingest of things. Um, there's a really incredibly poignant poem at the end of Ecclesiastes that talks about this. So open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 12, and it's a, it's a great place to stop and kind of wait, wade through and, and think about the, not just what it has to say, but the way it says it. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. And the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the, light, and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with rain in the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the women who grind cease working because they're few. And those who look through the windows see dimly when the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. When one is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road, the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. Because all must go to their eternal home and the mourners will go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the breath returns to God who gave it. Havel, havelim, says the teacher. Everything is havel. This is a, a this is a deep, deep poetic reflection on growing old. It is, it is, and it's metaphorical. The women who cease grinding because they're few is a reference to the teeth. They're no longer grinding food because so many are lost. Those who look through the windows see dimly, refers to the little people that you see whenever you look at someone's eyes in the pupils, the reflections of you. In the ancient world, people believed that you had little people in you, at, in the pupils. As a matter of fact, in, uh, Michael, I don't know, how you, we talked about learning Hebrew. Do you know the word for, for pupil in Hebrew? It means ishon. You know what, what's ish? Man, and ishon, a little man. So this is the little man. Because when you look in someone's eyes, someone's eyes, you see a person, right? This is the, those who gaze through the windows will see dimly, right? It's a reference to the fading of the eyesight, Right? The sound of the grinding is low. You're losing your hearing. All of this stuff. But it's, just, it's, but it's a beautiful reflection. It's not a, it's not a tragic thing. It's a beautiful reflection. And it's saying, look, you know, while you're young, carpe diem, but what are you seizing? Your creator, laying hold of creator, right? Because life doesn't last forever. You don't, you're not going to have every opportunity. So take hold when you can. Um, and above all else, you know, learn the fear of God. This is, this is how the book ends. As a matter of fact, at the very end of Ecclesiastes, we have this really interesting thing. Uh, matter of fact, can I have someone read Ecclesiastes twelve nine? Yeah, yeah, but we have a microphone over there, so. Just. No. <laughs> Just 9. Just 9. Well, no, no. Ch- ch- verse 9, <laughs> 10, and... Well, just read 9 and go on.
1: (laughs) Okay. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging Proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find pleasing words, and uprightly he wrote words of truth.
0: Pause there. Okay. Notice now we've just broken the frame. Because up to this point, these are the words of the preacher, king in Jerusalem. And then now we get to 12.9. And now somebody else is talking, and they're referring back to the preacher, and they're saying, these are the words of the preacher who did a lot of work to make us smarter and to train us up, right? So, whoever is responsible for giving us the majority of Ecclesiastes is not the person who laid their hands on it last. Someone else put it in a framework. And one of the things that's said next, Michael, if you can continue reading, really, is it's kind of illuminating, because... It's, it's saying, look, you know, the teacher sought to, to find the best way he could to express
1: truth. Now go on. The sayings of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings which are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil.
0: Good, thank you. I want you to notice that what is considered to be the sum point of the work, the end of the matter is this, fear God, is not actually the teaching of the person who gave us the majority of the work. He doesn't say that. It's the subsequent person who says, the teacher sought to give pleasant words and to teach us much truth. And then he says, the words of the wise are like goads. What's that reference to? Goads. Like cattle prods or spurs. Right? This, is, this is his experience. I think he's revealing to us his experience of reading Ecclesiastes. Like, boy, that was sure Painful. He said a lot of things. He, he, he tried to be pleasant. Whew. The words of the wise are like s- splintery metal in your sides. Right? The, the words of the wise are like goads. And then he says, they're like nails firmly fixed. Right? Like, y- y- you know, you can't escape them. Like, they're locked in. You can't change them. It's just, boom, they're there. And, he, and then he says this. Look, my child. Whoever's reading this book after I've given you the introduction and the conclusion, let me just tell you this. There's going to be a lot of books in the world, and a lot of people are going to pitch a lot of ideas, and it's going to suck you into a hole from which you'll never escape, (laughs) right? So, as wise as this man is, who's given us wonderful things to think about, and he's challenged us, and he's gripped us, remember at the end of the day, the thing that matters most is fearing God and keeping his commandments. So don't, you know, I think this is the way the author is saying, you know, this fellow really wrestled and struggled in his soul. This book is not an invitation for you to similarly suffer, but to learn a lesson from him and realize that what matters most at the end of the day is fearing the Lord, okay? With all the complexities of what that means, right? Fearing the Lord doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as being afraid of the Lord. Uh, you know, it, it, it has some nuance. So keeping his commandments, that's the whole duty of everyone and God will bring into judgment anything that's secret good or evil. Essentially just look, you know, the preacher in this book spends so much time looking into everything and he cannot find the meaning. And by the way, I've done this, right? I told I my, one of my favorite stories about like how would you say going off the beaten path or um, you know uh, missing an action moment. I was working on my dissertation and I, I got super hyper because I'm I'm like this. I, I just get super hyper focused. I'm laser beaming in, and you know, five hours go by. I'm supposed to be writing my dissertation. Five hours go by. My wife comes to my office. She says, "What you doing?" I am on the internet and I'm looking at Flickr, the photo sharing website. Well, but it's research, and it was it was because what happened was I was covering some large topic in the Bible, and I wanted to know what a certain text was saying about this that was written in Egyptian. So I went to find the text and I'm reading it and I'm realizing, oh, there's a, an error, or there's maybe an error here and there's a gap and it looks broken and well, gosh, I wonder what it says. And so I'm searching everywhere online I can to find it. And it took me, I mean, In the fifth hour, I had finally gone to the tourist collections on Flickr, and I was looking for images of tourists they took in front of an an inscription in Egypt, just looking for that right angle to see. What's that sign, the hieroglyphic sign down there? It's going to be revealed, and it's going to give me all truth. And and at the end of that five-hour period, uh, I realized the text actually did say, in fact, what it already had said. So I spent... I spent five hours of my life sinking into, honing in on one symbol on an inscription that I could only locate by going through other people's personal lives <laughs> only to turn around and go, what was that all about? <laughs> right? And there's, I think there's so much of the book of Ecclesiastes that feels that way. That there's futility in the things that we sink ourselves most deeply in and that we ought to, as the words of this, the, the, the capstone person, we ought to remember that There's a bigger world than the one thing that we're focused on. And that bigger world is a part of God's design. And and we ought to remember that properly orienting ourselves to him is our first
1: first job. Yeah, question. So we don't have five hours. (laughs) No, we don't. (laughs) You glossed over something that I've thought about a lot. And I've heard it explained, but I'm not satisfied. The word fear. Angels appear, and it's fear not. We are instructed to fear not, and yet there has to be some more meaning than just being in awe. Because I can be in awe and not be in relationship. When I'm in awe, Mm. oftentimes like you, I'm driven to a Mm. point of myself. There has to be something in the Hebrew that tells me that fear is a revelation to God. Mm. Can you help me with that? Okay,
0: well, I don't know if there's anything in the Hebrew that would lead you that way, but I think circumstantially and contextually we can see that oftentimes the appropriate response with fear. I, you know, so w- when the angels come and they say, fear not, I wonder, are they, are they trying to say that fear in this moment is the inappropriate response? Or are they trying to say, that's enough fearing, good for you, now let's be the non-fearing kind, right? Which one is it, right? Like, if the people didn't fall on their faces, would they have said, fear not? Or would they have said, fear, now fear not? <laughs> And I don't know, I don't know, because the, the instant reaction of most of those people when they're being told to fear not is that they are already in a posture of submission, okay? I have a feeling that when God, when God deals with someone who is in submission, he has something different to say than to someone who is not in submission, right? I, th- I do think, I really do, that fear of the Lord, yes, I think awe is a good, is a good understanding of it, but I think it's awe in submission, it is it is being prostrate before the Lord, bowing before the Lord. Uh, it's placing him first. It's reorienting around the compass of God. Right, he's the center. Um, and the reason I say that is one one of the passages that that really perplexes me in terms of the fear of the Lord is uh, in Deuteronomy fourteen, which is the the law of the tithe. It says, you know that. Uh, you should every year. You should set aside a tenth of your wine, grain, and oil, your produce, and anything you do. Set it aside as a tithe, literally a tenth. And then, when the uh, when the I think it's the feast of first fruits. Uh, I could be wrong. There's one time a year where the tithes are brought to the central sanctuary. And when that time comes, uh, you bring all of that tithe with you. You set it aside all year long, and you bring it with you. Now it also says if you live far from the central sanctuary. You convert the tithe that you have into hard currency, which is easier to transport. You convert it into silver, and then you bring that with you, okay? What happens then? You arrive at the central sanctuary. And this, uh, this is always fascinating to me. Uh, what happens then is if you bring your produce uh, or if you brought the silver, then the command ultimately ends the same. You're actually, you will actually eat the produce you are commanded to consume the goods. It doesn't go to God. It doesn't go to the people that serve God. It, it's the people that bring it. It's the worshipers that eat. Um, and it says, so you, know, you go, and you're going to enjoy this, and if you convert it to silver, then what you'll do when you come to the city of the sanctuary is you will buy, you'll go to the marketplace, and you will buy whatever you want, beer and wine and food and meat, and then you bring that to the house of the Lord, And you and your family and all of your kin will have a supper before the Lord in celebration. And this is is where it gets to the issue of fear. He says, you will eat before the Lord that you may learn to fear the Lord. What does that mean? In what way? Because the, the modality of this is you have set aside a tenth so that when you show up before the Lord, you can throw a pretty lavish banquet and your experience before in the presence of God in this moment is this wonderful, incredible, festal gathering of sharing and abundance, and this will produce this thing that we call Yerat Adonai, fear of, of the Lord. Uh, and I don't know how to do the calculus on that. I mean, that's the, the word Yerat literally means fear, but what is that? And, and I, think, I think the best I can think of is the fact that they are eating it in the presence of the Lord and not at home is... They're making his house their priority, right? And so it's about, like I said, orientation. I don't know how to take it further than that. I mean, clearly people had an actual fear response, and it was not considered inappropriate to fall on your face, right? The only time when it's not appropriate is when you fall on your face before someone who isn't worthy. Thus, for example, in the Apocalypse of John, Revelation of John, you know, John falls like one dead in front of the angel, and the angel says, Get up, I'm a fellow servant. Don't do that. And maybe that's why we hear angels saying, do not fear. Like, Don't bow down in front of me. That's not good. Bow before the one who deserves it. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Yeah, Does that make sense? Yeah, It's complex though. And I feel, like, I feel like my understanding of the concept of fearing God is evolving, not only because my understanding of Scripture is evolving, but my experience of the fear of the Lord is evolving. I told my church at one point that I, I, w- I will say this, that I think that at our time uh, that if you want to have a full relationship with God, then FaceTime should be a part of it. <laughs> and I don't mean getting on your phone, I mean getting on your face, <laughs> right? Like there should be some, some even bodily subjection to God uh, because He made us to be creatures in our bodies, and that's an expression of relationship as much as anything else. Yeah, Of course, you, if you're like me, you might not be able to get back up again. yeah. Oh, it certainly is. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, to avoid the intimacy is safer. Right, there's something very fearful about having an intimate relationship with anyone. I mean, like my wife, I mean, she's such a wonderful and kind and loving woman that I never really have to think about this, but there have been times where, you know, maybe we'll have a difficult fight or something and I go, she could destroy me. <laughs> you know, she knows so much about me. She knows every flaw. She knows every weakness. She knows all my history. You know, if she wanted to be wicked, I'd be in real deep doo doo, right? There's some fear in that, right? Because it's surrender. It's surrender and vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you're there. You're <laughs> there. What they don't tell you in those premarital counseling, you're going to get to a point of no return where you're going to, it's like mutually assured destruction, right? <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> every 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 husband and every wife has a red phone, right? So uh, the issue with, with Ecclesiastes, you know, being kind of a pessimistic thing, you know, it's easy to misunderstand, it's easy to misapply, you know. I am myself, I'm not always entirely certain what to do with the theology of Ecclesiastes. There's some things that he says, and I'm like, oh. you know. For, for, for example, for Ecclesiastes, like, there's very little afterlife concept for this person. He doesn't think about the afterlife as important or valuable at all. He says, you know what, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. That's what he says at one point. He says, you know, this life, it's all you get. It's all you get. Uh, I mean, he's the one who's giving advice, like, and he literally says, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. And then Jesus says, don't think that way. (laughs) So what does it mean, right? And I mean, and I think that's a part of recognizing that the meat of Ecclesiastes, the meat of Ecclesiastes was one person, and then the framework of Ecclesiastes is a second person. And what we might be having here is that the first person had something really deep to say, but the second person said, okay, but... Let me just kind of encapsulate this in a more orthodox framework and say, you know, you said a lot, and we have learned a lot from you. This is probably what you think about when I leave. You said a lot, and you've learned a lot from you, and we're going to have to have a talking to afterward. <laughs> <laughs> and Pastor Mike is going to get up, and he's going to say, scratch this that he said, don't listen to that, right? And that's like Ecclesiastes, <laughs> right? And I, no, I and I appreciate Ecclesiastes because it's rich, because it's diverse, because it's challenging, and because it also pushes us in our understanding of what Scripture is and how it works, and the complexities of authorship, and the fact that it goes through cycles, and that you know. And I say, you know, like when I teach my students, and I say, "Hey, this book was this originally, and then it was edited to be that." They go, "That just really, you know, boggles the mind." I said, "Why? If you believe that God can inspire an author, why can't He inspire an editor? Is there some big difference?" All right, now when I can get this thing working again, and no, I think it may have fallen asleep on me. Hmm, is that a possibility? Lamentations. I think it just ran out of batteries because I'm not getting a laser anymore, okay. So, (coughs) oh, I'm so sorry, (laughs) so sorry about that. That was intended to cover the mic, not to actually blow your eardrums out. Sorry about that. Yeah, fear the Lord, right? You always have to be ready. I was I was at a, I was at a church once where the pastor was giving a sermon, and uh, we happened, there was a train station or not like there was a train line running right behind us and in the middle of the sermon. He happened to be preaching about the second coming of Jesus, and then the train went woo! and he goes, "I'm ready, Lord." <laughs> oh, it was just a train. Never mind. <laughs> So lamentations uh, is often associated in the Christian tradition with the, uh, with the prophet Jeremiah. That's why it's in our Bibles it's placed afterward. Uh, I think that this has to do with the fact that the book of Chronicles tells us that Jeremiah composed laments over the king uh, who had fallen in his day, Josiah. He was a, a wonderful, well-beloved king of, of righteous uh, action. And so Jeremiah mourned him, grieved him, and composed lamentation over him. And because of that statement, later tradition said, oh, we have a book uh, of laments over Jerusalem. I bet Jeremiah composed it. Maybe he did. Maybe it was a thing he liked. So Lamentations, though, isn't focused on the death of a king, but on the death of Jerusalem as a city. And Jerusalem in this is depicted as a, as a woman who's been robbed of her young, and she's been left laying in waste. Uh, the, the idea of taking Jerusalem and making it a woman probably in some way has something to do with that marriage metaphor, too, the idea of God and uh, God and his people, husband and wife. And again, this comes up in, in the rest of Christian scripture as well, in the book of Revelation, right? I saw the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven like a bride, right? So God, God marries his people, or the idea is God, is God is in love with his people like a husband loves his wife, but his people and a city are often kind of intertwined, right? Um, I can't remember if I said this or not, before when we were maybe talking a bit about psalms one of my favorite hymns uh glorious things of thee are spoken okay i love that hymn i don't know if you ever stopped to realize what it's saying is it's it's not you know we have some hymns that we just like oh this is this is praise of god but that glorious things of thee are spoken is not really about praising god it's about praising the city of god and how glorious it is to be a member of the, the family of god which is still worthy of some sort of celebration, right? Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. Right? It's it's a song to, and this is drawn out of the Psalms, it's a song to the city of Zion as this thing that God is doing amazing things for and with and in, uh, and then he will himself be a part of it. And and that's an expression of you know the, gl- the gloriousness, the greatness that was membership to this community that was defined by city walls, right? And Lamentations is the flip side. It's been ruined, it's been destroyed, it's been crushed, it's been deprived. And we have no hope. We've been cast abroad. The whole poem kind of, it, 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 it digs down deep into a hole uh, and then it kind of climbs back out. But at the center of it, or in chapter three, pretty much the dead center of the book, we have this particular statement made about how the Lord's faithfulness is new every morning. And, you know, great is thy faithfulness, right? Your, 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 your faithfulness is new every morning. And it's this moment where the poet is, is untangling these feelings of sorrow and depression and discouragement and saying, we've lost a lot, but God is still good. And we have a hope for renewal in the future. We have hope that. No batteries. <laughs> no, that's all right. We have a hope in the future. We have a hope for restoration. We have a hope that that the God uh, who who made us and formed us would return to uh, to to be comforting to us again. Now, this is uh, written primarily in a very specific Hebrew meter called the Kina meter, which is uh, it's a strange concept. The way they do metrics is different than like classical like ambic pentometer or anything like that. But it tells us that the, even just the very literary style of the language here is meant to be read in a halting slow, three steps, then two form to kind of bring this weighty sense of significance. Um, the entire book is written in acrostic form, which means that um, the, the, no, the, the first letter of every word for like the first, what do I say, the first 22 verses, yeah, um, is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the second 22 verses, is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all the way to the end. And that's the way. That's the way it kind of breaks down. So it's not just this casual thing. It's a highly wrought piece of literature that seems to be serving some purpose of you know communal lament, communal mourning, um, and, and and you know meant to be read, not just heard, meant to be seen and not just heard. Because you can you can start a lot of words with the first letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet, and they won't all sound the same. A U E A. O, all of them start with the same letter <laughs> in Hebrew. Can we advance the slide? Thank you. So one of the things that I wonder about the lament in Lamentations is, you know, it's 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 traditionally you know recited at the the Jewish holiday of uh, the ninth of Av or Tisha B'Av, which is the commemoration of the destruction of the temple, and it, it's very clearly associated historically with the destruction of the temple. And one of the things that I think is most interesting is that we know from the ancient Near East that when a temple was destroyed, there was this problem you would have in the broader ancient Near East, which is the temple's in ruins, and so you want to do a favor, and you want to show love and worship to your deity by putting the place back together again. But it's also their private residence, and you don't want to trespass. So it's like, imagine the level of discomfort you'd feel if like a, a tornado hit somebody's house, your neighbor's house, and you wanted to help out and so you go in and you go into their, their most private of you know, inner sancta and their lingerie is everywhere and you're helping pick up all these like, things that you probably would never lay eyes upon and, and you feel uncomfortable touching, but you're doing the work, right? Like how do you negotiate, I don't belong here, but I'm trying to help. And that is where the laments come in. Oftentimes in the ancient Near East, people actually were anxious about going into the holiest places because they felt that if they did this in a way that wasn't appropriate, that God would strike them dead. And so they spent days preparing for this action by singing and chanting laments, expressing their great sorrow. Hey, we're sorry to do this, but your temple was destroyed. And you know your, your temple was in ruins, and we feel really bad about that, and that's why we're here. And so before we go in, we just want you to know we're here to help. We're here to rebuild. Don't kill us. <laughs> and we actually know this is, the, this is how the laments were done. And, and the, the ancient Easterners, especially Mesopotamia, they were very scrupulous and very careful about how they went about rebuilding a temple. They never rebuilt a temple unless they felt that God asked them to. They rebuilt it on exactly the foundations of the former temple so they didn't screw things up. And they always sung lots and lots of laments. And so when we have the, this book of Lamentations, I wonder if in some ways historically we're seeing its use in the book of Ezra. So if we look here, when the, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestment came forward with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who'd seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. And, you know, traditionally we want us to understand this as just simply a response from emotion, and that may be, but I wonder if it's also an acknowledgement of this tradition that in addition to celebrating the raising of a new house, you ought to grieve and mourn vocally over the destruction of the old house because you want the the deity to understand that that there's mixed feelings here. And, and you know, I'm not saying that's what limitations is, but it just strikes me as really an interesting thing that we have in our literature a lament, a communal lament over the desolation of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, and we have that tradition in the ancient Near East as well. Any questions about that, by the way? Yeah, I mean, there's just something interesting about that. Can you move the slide forward? So, in a very different uh, train of thought, Esther. <laughs> and And, you know... Inasmuch as we, you know, we talk about Ecclesiastes, not so much, but Lamentations is very Jerusalem-focused. And maybe, you know, maybe its context was the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple. Esther is a very different book. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you get the impression that the way of the future is get back to Jerusalem. That's where it's hot. Everybody go back. Let's rebuild. Then you have books like Esther and Daniel, that show very little interest on the part of the Jewish characters for return. They don't care. They're not interested. Why is that? I mean, it's not like they don't, it's not like you, maybe if you pressed them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily say bad things about Jerusalem, but it's just not on the agenda. Right? This is a, a story, one of several in the Hebrew Bible and in early Jewish literature, that talks about success stories. Yeah, okay, the Jewish people got exiled from their land, they got cast out, they struggle to make ends meet. They, they fight and, they, and they're under foreign rule which is never, it never feels good. But, you know, look at Daniel. Look at Esther. And, and in a lot of ways, I'm actually teaching a course right now on Second Temple literature. These stories feature really highly in that because these books kind of, I think, were guidebooks on how to, how to be Jewish in a culture that didn't accept that very well. You know, how did you construct your identity in such a way that you prospered and you flourished in spite of the odds set against you. And you know, it, was, it was all these things about you know, what does it mean to, so it cre- creates a sense of what does it mean to be a successful Jew? How do you leverage the position you get in society for the benefit of the people? Like Esther, and she becomes queen, and right when the hammer's about to fall the hardest on the Jewish people, and this fellow named Haman, who's mad at her cousin Mordecai, uh, essentially you know, he's gonna, he wants to execute all the Jewish people, and she's able to intervene and turn things around. And so this is fabulous story about, you know, how you can, you know, as a Jewish person, you can gain access to the levers of power. And you can get into the Gentile world and make a difference for the Jewish people, and you should. Of course, the, 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 the sort of interesting contrast is, I said before with respect to Ruth, you know, in Ezra and Nehemiah, foreigners are said to not belong to Israel. And these men who are women, or these men who are married to foreign women are told to divorce their wives and kick their children out of the house and get out of here. You don't belong. And then we have in our Bibles, the same Bible that Ezra's in, we have Esther marrying a king of Persia, who's pretty pagan, right? And it's a great, great, great thing that had happened because if it hadn't happened, then everybody would be dead, right? So there's some tension here. There's tension. And I don't know, you could argue, maybe, and maybe this is something that needs to be said, you could argue that Jews outside the Holy Land had more flexibility than those inside the Holy Land. That intermarriage on the sacred territory was a bigger risk because that was more close to offending God than if you do that over there. Maybe that's true. Maybe that would resolve our tension, but we just can't, we can't say that for sure. We do know that Esther is a Jewish woman married to a non-Jewish king of Persia and that it, it really is a kind of a striking example of, of uh, a way a pattern that one might use how to, how to negotiate these threatening forces that threaten the people of, of uh, Israel, the Judeans. So what is kind of troubling about this book, aside from the fact that it is pretty much a long reflection on what a Jew is to do when someone wants to exterminate their whole race, which kind of tongue-in-cheek, right? I mean, this is living history. It also raises some some challenging issues because, Esther's response isn't just to negate Haman's request, but to make sure that Haman and everyone who's related to him will be executed. Wipe them out. And, and there's, a principle, um, there's a principle that actually is, is found in the Talmud uh, about sort of what are the parameters of killing, when it's permitted, and when it's not. And, and you have this phrase, imbalaharogcha hashkem lahargo. If someone rises up to kill you, you are permitted to strike first and kill him. Okay? It, 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 self-defense. Strike and self-defense. But the question is, is what how do we define that 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 moment when we realize that other person is coming to harm me? Okay? And the reason I bring this up is that in modern Israel, that phrase, Hashkem lahoreg Laharog, Hashkem Laharog, is actually used to justify striking out against Palestinians that might one day become a threat. Arise and kill first. That is actually used, I mean, it's in newspapers. Okay? It's in policy manuals. Hashkem lahorog, laharog. Rise up and kill them first. Whew. There's a danger in that. Where do we draw the line? How do we know? Right. So in as much as Esther emblemizes you know, success, it also kind of gives us this, this question of, you know, what is the proper response? You know, is, is the proper response to imminent violence to overcome it and then enact it? Can you move slide forward? Boy, we are really running out of time. This is not a great time to be talking about Daniel. <laughs> I mean, Daniel is very complex literature. Um, so let me just say this. So uh, like Esther, Daniel is largely a story of Jewish success in exile. What that looks like and how to manage it. And it has all sorts of vignettes. Like, um, you know, Daniel chapter one is essentially a, a, a bit of an essay on um, why keeping Jewish food laws is a really great idea when you're amongst pagans and how God will bless you for it, right? Because it, it, there's this bit about him not eating the meat or drinking the wine at the king's table and eating only vegetables, which, you know, of course, has given birth to the Daniel plan. You guys are familiar with this, right? Daniel plan. You ever heard of the Daniel plan? So apparently the Daniel plan is like the Bible's way of dieting, right, or something like that. Well, I mean, really what Daniel was doing was saying that these were unclean foods and they weren't fit for a Jew to consume. It had nothing to do with his health. Uh, It was all about his religious devotion. So it was a great marketing campaign, though. Anyway, alongside uh, literature like, like Esther and Daniel, we have other books like Tobit and Judith, which are apocryphal works for the Protestant church, but also do the same thing. They talk about Jews in exile, how they got along. In our case with Daniel, we have the added feature that Daniel, uh, Daniel written in the post-exilic period, happens to be one of the two books in the Bible that has a significant portion in Aramaic. Uh, Ezra is the other, uh, but between the two, Daniel has the longer section in Aramaic. There's been a lot of questions about this, why. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 in Hebrew is in Hebrew. Daniel chapter 2 up to verse twenty five is in Hebrew, and then after in Aramaic, all the way up through chapter six, and then chapter seven is in Hebrew. And so some people have suggested maybe chapter you know two and a half, you know, <laughs> up to chapter six is like the original core of the book, and then somebody came along and supplemented it with Hebrew. Uh you know, maybe it's two halves of two different books or something like that. But it's a very complicated piece of literature because in chapter two of Daniel, Daniel has a vision. I mean, actually, truth be told, it's not his vision. It is the king of of Babylon's vision, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar puts a test. It's a dream interpretation test, but he's not fair. He goes to his specialist and he says, I want you to tell me my dream and its interpretation. And they go, well, just tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. He goes, no, that's not the rules. And the test is, he says, you know, I've got a lot of bozos in my court that tell me you know what your dream means, I don't trust you because how do I know you're not just pulling it out of your butt? So if you want to prove to me that you know what you're talking about, you're not only going to tell me the interpretation of the dream, you're going to tell me what I dreamed. And if you can't, I'm going to kill you. By the way, Daniel's response to this, when he finally catches word, he brokers a peace because the people that are on the axe are not friends of Daniel because Daniel has success where they failed and they don't like it. So they're going to go kill Daniel. He finds out. He runs for cover. He gets an associate. The guy, you know, he's like, "Okay, look, this is the deal. I'm going to give me a, a moment with the king." So he goes before the king. He says, "King, my lord, the king. I'm going to tell you your dream and its interpretation, but on one condition: if I come through and I'm successful, don't kill these other men, these these other astrologers and magicians. Don't kill them. Keep them alive." Now, this is the way that he's trying to be as a good Jew. This is the model he's striking that make friends out of your enemies, (laughs) overcome the animosity. When it is falling to you to either throw these people under the bus or save their lives, you always save their lives in hope that this might actually produce something good in the end. And so Daniel uh, tells the interpretation of the dream, and he tells him the dream. And it's that dream, this dream of a statue with multiple parts, and each part represents a kingdom, that will be unpacked in Daniel's chapter 7 to 12. There's an intimate relationship. It's almost like Daniel keeps having a reincurring nightmare and that each of these aspects is, is unfolding a new part of the dream. And in this, Daniel not only reveals like what this particular king is wondering about, but the book of Daniel gives excruciating detail on the rise and fall of kingdoms from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the rise of the Jewish monarchy under the Hasmoneans. And I mean, he, he identifies, not by name, but he identifies Alexander the Great, Alexander's main two successors, Ptolemy and Seleucus. He identifies when Rome fits into the picture. He identifies when Jerusalem will be sacked by Antiochus IV. Detail after detail after detail. Very, very odd. Unlike any other prophetic book. And this is probably why Jews don't see it as prophecy. They see it as something else. We typically call at least the second half of Daniel apocalyptic literature, because it is filled with vivid imagery and symbolism and a way of talking that also correlates with a vision of an expected day called the day of the Lord, when, when the great plan of God will be sort of enacted and a kingdom will rise that will never end. But there's so much complexity about this that we're gonna have to wait for next time to talk more. Okay, thank you so much for today. Be safe in the weather. If it gets colder, I'm not sure how much longer I can take it. I might have to move to Florida before next time.